following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Never before in history had a people been taken out of another people, brought across a burning desert, and planted in their own land in a wonderful place flowing with milk and honey. Only God could do that. He brought the children of Israel out under the wondrous miracles performed against Egypt until finally the Egyptians drove them out. Now they could have made it to the promised land in about three or four days most, but instead they went to the desert. Because there in the desert, they were to learn how to trust God, how to wait upon Him. Can I tell you, the most difficult part of my journey has not been turning away from outward sin or even from inward sin, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
Jesus broke those things in me. But what's been most difficult for me has been learning how to trust and wait upon Almighty God. To wait upon God. It seems a foolish thing to do. We are trained. If it's going to be, it's up to me. Go get the job done. But no. Then we came up with sayings like, God helps those who help themselves. And many people believe that that comes straight out of the Bible. It doesn't. Nowhere in the scripture does it say God helps those who help themselves. No, in the scripture it's God lets those who help themselves keep on helping themselves. And he's pulled back and silent. They came out of the Red Sea. Probably more than a million people. Before they crossed, the Egyptians chased them. We find the story in Exodus 14. We're going to look very quickly at some stories. Exodus 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answers, Don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord that he will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That was the first lesson of the desert. Let God fight for you. Stop trying to make it all work the way you think it ought to work. And don't become angry with God. Don't cry out against him. Believe in him. Trust him. Oh, that is so difficult to do. And it takes a desert walk to teach us how to do that. Then we find, again, in the book of Exodus... They come out across that Red Sea. It's parted on both sides. They can see the towering walls of water. They see the Egyptians killed, drowned, as that water crashes down as the last child of God walks on that dry land out of that, that sea. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they finally came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. 
So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ that makes everything sweet for us. The water became sweet, and the Lord made a decree and a law for them. He tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, and there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped near the water. Now, this is one of God's ways. He brings us into a crisis. He tests us to see if we will believe in him or if we will grumble. But at the very beginning of our walk, he doesn't do that. Instead, he hears our cry. He answers our cry. And then he waits to see what we're going to do. In the beginning, it is God who is waiting upon us. In the end, it is we who are waiting on God. Now, in chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, there's no food in the desert, and they've used up the food that they brought out of Egypt. And the whole community is again grumbling against Moses and Aaron, The Israelites said to them, this is chapter 16, verse 3 of Exodus. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, just on the face of it, do you see how foolish that position is? God has invested such time and energy in bringing forth the children of Israel out of the Egyptians' camp. He's brought them out to himself. He's made a covenant with them that if they will listen to his voice, if they will do what is right in his eyes, if they will pay attention to his commands, if they will keep his decrees, he will not allow any disease to come upon them. He is the Lord who heals. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And they are now given back something which has not been a part of their life. It's not been heard of since the early days before the fall of man. God is saying, look, on the seventh day of the week, I am going to come and fellowship with you. Well, they're, gl- they're grumbling. They're complaining. But he sends quail. They cover the camp. So now they have their quail or their chicken. And then the next morning, 
the manna was on the ground, perfect diet, perfectly balanced, delicious, tasting like honey and wafers. Then chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, and they camped at Rephidim. Now please understand, wherever they went in the morning, there would be train loads, truck loads of manna to feed a million people takes a lot of bread. It was all laid out on the ground. So they had to get on their knees to pick up their provision, humbling their hearts before God, recognizing the God of heaven was feeding them. Well, they went to Rephidim, and there was no water there. So they again quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Moses couldn't bring them water. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water. They grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are about ready to stone me to death. The Lord answered, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa, meaning testing, and Meribah, meaning quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, wait a minute. Am I missing something? Above them during the day is a cloud with natural air conditioning keeping them cool. At night it's a pillar of fire so they have light to see by. They have manna every morning. They had the quail supernaturally. Now they're out of water again. And they're complaining again. They will not believe that the Lord will provide for them. They are hard-hearted unbelievers. And this begins to make God angry with them. And so he increases their fear and their pain by allowing the Amalekites, a warlike desert people, a nomadic people, He allows them to attack the children of Israel. And people died. Now Aaron and Hur go with Moses to a little hill. 
He sits up on top of that hill, and he raises his staff. But his hands grow tired, because when he drops his hands, the Amalekites are winning. When he keeps his arm up in the air, holding that staff, the children of Israel are not being defeated. They're winning. A very clear demonstration that their winning over the Amalekites will only come about as Moses raises the staff of God's presence over them. So Aaron and Hur end up having to hold up his hand because he can't hold up his arm. It's too tired. It turns numb. So they hold up his arms. Now, when we look at these stories, there immediately comes a question. Why would they not wait upon the Lord and praise his name for what he had done for them in the past and stand by faith that he will do it again for them, that he is their provision? Why will they not wait upon the Lord? They're not willing to wait. They want what they want right now, and if they don't get it, a little pain with the thirst. The cattle are bleeding, the the sheep are bleeding, the the camels and the donkeys, all the animals, the livestock, they all want water. Now, let's be very clear. Some of you, when you think about the rock pouring forth water, think about a very small spurting stream like a drinking fountain of water. Wrong. When Moses touched that rock with his staff, the New Testament tells us that rock represented Jesus Christ. And when he opened that rock for water to pour out, it was a huge rock. And a river flowed out of that rock. I've spoken to people who have been to that rock. Water is still coming out. It was a river of water that day. It was enough water to satisfy almost instantly all of the livestock, the children of Israel, It was fresh, it was clear, it was sweet water. And yet over and over, they will not wait on the Lord. Now today, it's very hard to wait upon the Lord. Because in our culture, we want everything now. We want our rent, our mortgage. We want our car payment. We want what we want. We want it now. We're not going to wait. We're going to go do whatever we have to do to make sure we've got everything covered. And if it doesn't work, we've got credit cards and we can cover it now and wait until we can make the money later. Everything is about us and what we can do to provide for ourselves. And God has withdrawn. So in some countries in the world, in Africa, parts of Africa, parts of other nations, the miracle working of God flows quickly and freely to heal the sick. Miracles are expected. 
They have no means of taking care of themselves. They will die if God does not step in and care for them. Psalm 27, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. What does that mean today? It means we stop creating our own path. We stop creating our own way. Let's say you're in sales. And every day is a new day. It's what can you do for me today? I have spoken often with Christian salespeople who know how to wait on the Lord. And they tell me that as they wait upon the Lord and do what they're supposed to do in faithfulness, God will bring the sales to them. How? They don't know. But God will bring the people and he'll bring the sales and he will provide for them. There's so many questions about, do I just go do the best I can do and leave the rest up to God? No. No. You wait on the Lord for his direction. You keep doing the job you're doing. You keep doing it faithfully according to his command. And you wait on him to open that new opportunity. You wait on his direction for how to go about that opportunity. You wait on the Lord. You don't go out thrusting yourself forward and initiating what you want. You wait on the Lord. The Lord is in charge. You're not. He is the one who gives provision. You're not. Now, you can go out in human flesh, and you can create all kinds of things. That's not of the Lord. You can do that in the church. You can do that in the business. You can do that in many different places. But it's not the Lord. And so he will be far from you. Right now in my life, I'm in a place where the Lord has said, Wait upon me, Ray. Wait upon me. And I will carry you. Okay. I know God wants to do some wonderful things in this city with revival and ministry. I'm not going to go out and try to create that. I'm going to wait upon him. And he will create it. Let me read a scripture to you. 
This is one that is not well understood. It is often misused in the church today. Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. I'm going to begin reading for you. Let's see, in verse 25. If we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This morning in my prayer closet, I was praying this prayer. I was saying, Lord, I don't know how to pray about bringing revival to Washington, D.C. I don't know how to pray about you're breaking forth on this radio broadcast and bringing people to humble repentance before your throne. Lord, there's such a casualness, such a such a human aura of importance and arrogance. I don't know how to even begin to break through this. I've spent now almost 50 years. This fall, it will be 50 years in ministry in Washington, D.C. The battle has frankly been too much for me. I've not been able to break through. My dear late pastor and father in the faith, David Wilkerson, came to Washington, D.C. down on the mall and did a big gathering I, of course, went down and and talked with him and prayed with him. He preached to a huge crowd. And then he went back to New York City. And it was though he had pulled his finger out of a bucket of water. The water all filled back in. It was as if he had never been there. This is the experience of many who come to Washington, D.C. The powers of darkness are so awesome in this city that no one is breaking through. Now, it was not always such. There was a time when there was revival in this city. People used to travel out to Washington Grove in the summertime out by Gaithersburg. They'd come by train, and they'd come by buggy. And Washington Grove was a great revival center. The preaching of the gospel was mighty. All of that is in the past. Billy Graham personally told me that he would not come and do a a great rally in Washington, D.C., an evangelistic event in D.C., He said, I can't get the churches to cooperate. The city is closed to me. This city is in very, very serious trouble with Jesus. 
He wants to come in great power and revival power. I can't make that happen. So this morning, in my prayer closet, in the early hours of this morning, I said, Lord, you're searching my heart. You know what I need. You know what I want. You know where I stand on bringing revival forth. I have waited upon you. Holy Spirit, would you intercede on my behalf? Would you intercede on behalf of the National Prayer Chapel? Will you intercede and break the heaviness of this city that is so crushing to any person who is serious about Jesus, who is sensitive to the presence of the Spirit of God? The heaviness is is mind-breaking. I said, Lord, you send the Holy Spirit. Intercede for me. But I want you to notice something. It says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. He doesn't intercede based on what I want. Hence the necessity of waiting on God for his purpose to be accomplished, not for my purpose. Does God want to save this city? Absolutely. Does God want to bring revival to Washington, D.C. and see thousands swept into the kingdom of God and see the whole ungodly gang of people transformed by the presence of God so that they're either converted or they flee this city? Yes, he does. He's done it before in other cities where his presence actually comes down and people... Wicked sinners fall to their faces on the ground, weeping, because they're suddenly finding themselves in the mighty presence of God. This is what we must have in this city. Now this passage, verse 28, that is so abused and so misused in the Christian church today. And we know that in all things, this is Romans, the 8th chapter, Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, we stop and we read it as I did. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And we stop right there. Wrong. That's just a comma. It's not a period. That's not the end of the thought. God does not work everything out for your good because you say you love him. Are you kidding me? He won't do that. But notice the rest of the sentence. And we know that in all things, that is everything touching your life, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God will work out for you. God will work out for you. 
everything. It will work out for your good as long as you are called and are walking in his purpose. What is God's purpose? One, to destroy all the works of the devil. And two, to save the children of Adam and Eve from destruction. To rescue us from the hand of the devil. To save us, sozo, to draw us out, to save us. What is God's purpose? To make us fishers of men. To make us as his instruments of salvation, drawing the lost into his kingdom with the love and trust and faith of our hearts as we walk in obedience to Jesus. We cannot expect that God is going to work everything out in our life because we say we love him. Or even if we do love him at some level, but we're not walking according to his purpose. God will answer prayer in accord with his purpose, not your purpose, not my purpose. So I don't want to be controlled by my sinful nature. I want to be controlled by the Spirit of the living God. I want the Spirit of God living in me, and he does. And when I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me, all I want to do is the purpose of God. And I lay my life down that his purpose might be accomplished. Now, if you want to accomplish your purpose, you should not wait on God. You should just go get her done. If this is about you and what you want and your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations, do not wait on God because he will not be a part of any of that. God is going to be a part of only that which serves his purpose. If you are walking in the purpose of God, He's going to work out everything in accord with his will. Now, that does not mean, it does not mean that you will not suffer. Because righteousness is, for some reason, only developed through suffering for sin. In other words, you make poor choices and poor decisions. And that, Poor choice or poor decision creates a whip on your back. You can be about God's purpose. And all things are going to work out for your good. That does not mean for your pleasure. That does not mean for your comfort. That means for your good, for eternal good, for the accomplishment of what God has in mind, which is to destroy the works of the devil and to save the lost from hell. And he wants to use you in that process. 
when we have suffered enough for our sin, we will be done with our sin. In other words, when we have thrust ourselves out, as I have, and as you probably have as well, and tried to create something that would serve the kingdom of God, and you're always reaching out, but you don't have the peace of God in your heart. You don't have any success in what you're trying to accomplish. God will work out for you what is the very best. And the very best is that you should become like Jesus and be filled by his Spirit and walk in his Spirit and obey his Holy Spirit. If God loves you, there will be much pain in your life because he is going to allow the wickedness of your heart to be fully exposed by the Holy Spirit because he wants you pure and clean, washed in the blood. But if you're about lifestyle, you're about comfort, you're about security, you're about accomplishments, you're about people recognizing that you're somebody, all of that is going to have to be broken off your life for God's purpose to be accomplished for you. Now I've watched men and women who were filled with their own self preach the gospel, teach others about Jesus, and Jesus has gloriously used them to accomplish wonderful work in the lives of other people God used a donkey in Balaam's situation. And God can use you even though you're just a donkey. You can speak the gospel and others will be saved. While you yourself are walking in arrogance before God, you're denying the reality of his holiness in your life. You want what you want. You love your money. You love your lifestyle. You love you. God can still use you. But in the end, you will lose your salvation. Because you were not walking in the inner part of your heart, in God's purpose, and the Holy Spirit searched your heart. And he found those hidden lusts, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of what you have and do. He knows you. He knows who you are. And he wants to transform you. He wants everything to work according to his purpose. Where are you with God's purpose? Are you about providing for your life, your entertainment, your friends, your family, are you about looking good in front of other people? About being comfortable? Are you about accomplishments? 
Are you about you? Or are you about Jesus? You can talk about Jesus and not be about Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? Are you working in accord with the purposes of God? Or are you working in accord with your own purposes using the gospel of Jesus? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Loving God is not enough. You must also then walk in his purpose, which is to make you holy, to prepare a people to dwell for eternity in holiness. So where are you today? Are you operating according to the purposes of God? Or are you operating in your own wisdom, in your own flesh, according to your own desires? So you want that lifestyle? You want that lust? You want that pornography? You want that bitterness? You love that anger? You love the lazy, laid-back, unconsciousness? Is that where you're at? What is it that you really want? What is it you're really going after? Please, may I say to you, when you make the decision that you're going to wait upon God, the first thing that will happen is you will begin to lose things. You'll probably lose some friends. You will probably lose some things. When I made the decision to begin waiting upon God, I lost everything. So much so that I became homeless with my wife. And a an acquaintance, a pagan acquaintance, took us in. And for five years we lived reading the scriptures and praying in seclusion with no public ministry. And then the Lord called us out. And then for the next two years, again, we had no real public ministry. And then finally the Lord said, now go to radio and preach my word. He provided the income, the resources to buy that first month. And the rest is history. But I had to go into seclusion for basically seven years reading the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation more than 50 times, just reading it and reading it, soaking in it, praying. God called us to that. He disciplined me severely. He opened the way for me. The date was, let me see if I can find it. Yes. The date was July 25, 
2006. I was utterly devastated. My wife, Jan, was extremely sick. It looked like she could die. She had asthma, and the attacks were destroying her body. The church was not doing well. The finances were extremely tight. I didn't know from one month to the next whether we could afford the rent. I was having such a painful, difficult time. I was waiting upon the Lord, and in the waiting upon the Lord, friends and family turned against me and said, You are a fool, Ray. Go get a job. Earn the money. Take care of your family. Do whatever you have to do, but go provide for yourself. And I said, I can't. I'm waiting on God, and he hasn't told me what to do. I went upstairs. I went in the closet. It was a walk-in closet. I shut the door. And I lay on my face, and I wept before God. And I said, Lord, I can't live this way anymore. You've called me. I've obeyed you. But I'm totally out of every resource. I'm at the end of everything I know to do or say. My world has crashed in on me. Everything is at an end. It is finished. I wait on you for direction. And very quietly and audibly, I heard these words with my ears. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Lord is your helper. Do not be afraid. What can man do to you? And a great load was lifted off of my heart. You recognize these words come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And then the words were changed. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And suddenly there arose in my heart such joy, such peace. There arose in my heart such confidence in Jesus. Many times since then, I have gone into the prayer closet and I have said, Lord, you said you would never leave me and you would never forsake me. So even though I don't hear your voice, I don't see you, I don't sense your presence, 
I know you have not left me, and I know you have not forsaken me, and I now wait upon you, Lord. In the midst of my brokenness and my tears and my pain, I wait for my God. And I want to say to you, he has never let me down. Jesus has never let me down. I am clear I am about his purpose with my life. I'm clear that I love him with all that I am. And even if it seems that he is miles away, I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord. He said that he would not leave me. He said that he would not forsake me. And he is not going to break his word to me. He will not break his word to you either. But you must be willing to obey him. And you must be willing to turn from all sin and cast utterly your life into his hands. You must be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and uncover everything of darkness, everything of wickedness. You must be willing to utterly give yourself into his hand and decide now I'm not going to rescue myself again, ever, no matter what happens. Even if I die, I will not rescue myself. I will wait upon the word of the Lord He is with me. He will not forsake me. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can disease do to me? What can a lack of money do to me? The Lord is my helper. I stand by faith on the word of the Lord. He did everything he could to convince the children of Israel to just trust him but they would not. And so he allowed them to die in the wilderness, and he brought their children into the promised land. Have you refused to trust in the word of the Lord? And have you made your own way? Have you lit your own fire, your own torches? You've made your own plans? Then get on your face before God and repent. Are you in the business deal because you created it? Or did the Lord give it to you and lead you into it? I refuse to take one step forward in any way without the direct leading of the Holy Spirit according to the purpose of Jesus. I am not going to provide for myself a car. I'm not going to provide for myself a house. I'm not going to provide for myself one thing. I'm going to do the work he's assigned me. I'm going to be faithful with this broadcast. I'm going to be faithful with the National Prayer Chapel. I'm going to be faithful with people who call me or who come by, who ask me to go meet them. I'm going to be faithful and do exactly what Jesus has called me to do but I am not going to create my own nest. I'm not going to create my own way. I am about the purposes of God. Are you? Have you made that decision? 
before God will begin to carry you, you have to make that decision and cast yourself utterly upon the Lord, trusting him with all your heart. And he will then carry you. Well, we're out of time. This is Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. One of the ways that the Lord has told me to pay for this broadcast is by inviting you to give as the Lord leads you. We're coming to the end of the month. Would you be willing, at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to give what he asks you to give? If so, please write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I would rather not next week have to do Days of Offertory, asking you to call in and make a pledge. I would much rather have you step forward now and simply give what the Holy Spirit tells you to give so that this broadcast can continue. We are from month to month by faith. Write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or go to nationalprayerchapel.com. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining me. God bless you, my brother. I love you. My sister, I love you. I pray for you every day. I'll talk to you soon. Great joy Now unto him who is able To keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory With great joy Jesus Christ alone.